NATO, America is told to stay strong in the alliance. Afghan forces attempt to take back Sangin. Libya, the Tripoli-based government, refuses to bow out. British troops practice desert warfare in Jordan. But what for? Who's the new head of Russia's National Guard? And the British spy who gave lectures to the Stasi. The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has been in Washington this week. In a speech last night, he pleaded with America to stay strong in NATO. For almost 70 years, NATO has brought Europe and North America closer together, providing security for both sides of the Atlantic. I know that I can count on continued leadership of the United States. I also know that the mutual interests of Europe and the United States are best served by a strong North Atlantic alliance. Because the security of Europe and North America is indivisible. And, the, and it is only by standing together we will remain safe and secure. Well, I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and, as usual, by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Hello. Uh, Paul Rogers, um, what was his mission to the US about exactly? What was he trying to achieve, the Secretary-General? Well, obviously, you have the elections coming up in the autumn. There are very big questions over some of the candidates. It would be very interesting to see how NATO gets on if either Mr. Cruz or indeed... uh, (laughs) You're sniggering ahead of the prospect. Hmm? Sorry about that, yes. Or or, or Mr. (laughs) Trump gets it. And on the Democrat side, obviously, Hillary Clinton looks like she will get it. But there is the question of Bernie Sanders as well. So I think, obviously, this is a time to be um, cautious and to establish or maintain good relations with the current administration Mm. and hope for a transition. But there are also all the issues over Syria and Afghanistan, which we'll be discussing later, not forgetting Ukraine. So, I mean, it's a much busier time than you expected with the uncertainty over the American election. Indeed, Christopher. There's another side of this, and that is that in the summer there is to be a NATO summit, i.e. a a, a meeting where all the heads of state and heads of government, or heads of government anyway, go, rather like the one that that was in Wales. A hundred days to go, you've reliably informed us. A hundred days to go. Now, I mean, what's important, you say, so the Secretary-General has to trog it over to uh, and talk to the President, and he's going to get, he went through a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. He says, that is, Stoltenberg and Obama, this is sort of milestone stuff, that they're going to have in Warsaw, where the where the meeting will take place, and it is so because if you imagine what or everything is going on in Europe that wasn't going on just when the the, the last summit took place, uh, the, the terrorist attacks attacks in in Europe, the difficulty is of what they've left behind in Afghanistan not working, mm-hmm. but most of all. It's the terrorism aspect, which is and and Putin himself, which has actually brought the Americans. In, in some ways, sort of back into Europe. So he says, uh, he's saying to to to, um, uh, to Obama this week, we've got to have a policy statement. We've got to actually know what collective defence means and what people put in it. Is that what the aim will be at this particular summit, oh, yes. do you think? Yes, more troops will have to be uh, promised, whether they get 
uh, to turn up is another matter. And under what circumstances they may turn up, whether they turn up, whether it be pre-positioned equipment or whether, as the Americans have just announced, uh, new large formation which are replaced every six months, whether they exercise, who exercise with them, the greater pressures, therefore, that means on, on budget. The other thing that's going to happen is that uh, at that summit, it, I think that, uh, that President Obama, which will be his last NATO summit, he's going to make two very, I think, two, two maybe three important points. One is to, there's got to be far more exchange on intelligence and cyber uh, intelligence uh, between different countries. You've got to bring the neutrals in, like uh, 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 Sweden. You can't any longer sort of have a, have a big defence policy in Europe without bringing them in, Finland as well. And the other thing is that the nuclear thoughts on world problems like terrorism, the possibility through places like Pakistan, people in Pakistan, that nuclear uh, materials might get to terrorism. Because as um, Obama has quite often thoughtfully says, do you remember the, uh, when there was a, a, a nuclear reactor went, went wonky in Russia? Mm. It proved at the time that nobody can be neutral, and that's what he's saying. Professor Paul Rogers, how, how do you think Russia might play its hand in the lead-up to this summit? Well, the ex extraordinary thing, and it makes it very difficult for NATO, is that Putin actually wants NATO to appear more aggressive. He would like to see NATO troops forward-based uh, with American troops exercising in Poland and elsewhere because he then plays on the idea that, quotes the Russian near abroad is being threatened by NATO. And this is what makes it very difficult for the United States. You have to try and reassure some of the states in Eastern Europe that are very concerned about the new Russia and at the same time not play into Putin's hand because he turns the whole thing round and says that it is Russia under threat. That's a crucial thing. The other one I really do have to agree with, Christopher, what is clear is that ISIS has been planning for the best part of two years to bring the war into Europe. And really, I think Paris and uh, Brussels were the start of a much more difficult period. Uh, and I think that, in a sense, means that in those two areas, um, issues become centre stage and uncertain in NATO at a time when you have the question about the viability of the EU itself with the mm. British referendum coming in. It's a, it's a pretty difficult time. And we've, got, we've now have sort of five centres uh, for intelligence uh, exchange of information, and they're called hubs, intelligent hubs. Europe uh, wasn't in one these until recently. Really, and nobody thought it was necessary because you could all work together anyway. How many but, in a hub? Uh, well, it depends which countries they are. For example, in South, uh, Southeast Asia, which is one of the hubs, there are 11 different countries. In Europe, it, in theory, it'll be 28. But it's interesting that the United Kingdom hub is not going to be in the United Kingdom. It's going to actually to be in Central Europe because the idea is that if you're going to do this in a counterintelligence uh, uh, or counterterrorist hub, you've got to emphasise the need to find systems, not just willingness, but systems to bring all the intelligence together, so, how to disseminate it, and then what action and who takes the action. So all eyes on Warsaw. What's the date? Uh, it is uh, hundred days to go. Hundred days to go. Well, it'll be the seventh. It'll, actually, what's the day? Seventh, isn't it? Eighth of July, I'm told. Eighth of July. So it'll be the eighth of July. We'll look forward to that. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what's going on in Libya? One government steps down, but immediately steps back up again. And British troops go back to the desert in exercise. Shamel Storm. Sit rep.
Sangli, Nadali, Musakala, all towns that British soldiers fought for in Afghanistan, which are now under Taliban control. Now the Afghan National Army has launched a major new offensive to take back Sangin. Let's talk to BBC correspondent Justin Rowlett, who's in Kabul. Uh, Justin, more than 400 British troops died fighting in Helmand province. What's the situation there right now? Well, the situation in Helmand is at least as troubled as it was when the British were there. In fact, as you said in your introduction there, um, the Afghan National Army has withdrawn from various key locations that the British fought very hard to defend. I mean, what they've called these is strategic uh, withdrawals. And I put it to one of the commanding officers with resolute support, which is the ongoing NATO mission to train, advise and assist the Afghan army. I put uh, Brigadier General Rawling that uh, that actually when uh, the Afghan army said strategic withdrawal, what they really meant, they were using it as a euphemism for surrender. And naturally, he was a bit chary at, at accepting that. I mean, he emphasised that these were strategic and they were indeed, as I suggested, withdrawals. But he said the important thing was to consolidate uh, Afghan forces, uh, recuperate and then obviously, you know, try to move from this, frankly, defensive position into a more offensive stance. And actually, of course, that very much echoes the experience of the British while they were in Helmand. There, were, there was a huge debate, people will remember, about whether or not the British were overextended and had left small groups of soldiers to defend ultimately, you know, uh, you know, defend small communities and that ultimately they were overstretched and uh, overcommitted. Mm. Um, so it's very interesting. We're hearing an echo of the same kind of strategic debate um, happening now. And I think in a way that tells us something very interesting about Helmand. It tells us just how difficult it is to get on top of the Taliban in that province yeah. is, is, of course, a very, very strong Taliban, strong province. And you were in Helmand only yesterday, and during your time in the province, you went to Camp Bastion. What's it like there now? Well, I, d I didn't go to Bastion when it was British, so it's hard to say. I mean, it's a much smaller operation. You know, at its peak, um, when uh, the British were there, there were 40,000 troops. Now there's just 20,000 troops. And when I was there, as you said in the introduction, they'd launched this major offensive in Sangin, and that uh, that was a cantac, as they call them. About 600 troops were, were out there, so it was a smaller operation. But, um, yeah, you know, it's a big, dusty camp in the middle of the desert, about 20 miles away from the Helmand River and the, uh, the kind of lush green poppy fields that uh, obviously are so key to the uh, the the, the uh, long run conf long running conflict in uh, in Helmand. Um, you know the, the the you know the the base seems you know well run and efficient. The you know when you go on these embeds, obviously you're shown what they want you to see. And we saw you know uh, an effort to improve you know even the warehousing operation as well as the more traditional kind of troop training that you'd expect to see. The emphasis being on. You know the, what the what the uh, the message that Resolute Support wanted us to take away was. You know this is a comprehensive effort to yeah. create a really uh, effective fighting force in the Afghan army. Justin Rowlett, thank you for joining us. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers is still he here. Um, it almost sounds like there was no point to the war in Afghanistan whatsoever. Well, we're certainly in a very difficult position. I mean, one of the most disturbing things is that where there have been successes and, and education, particularly girls' education, certainly won over the last 10 years, that is actually receding now. Something like 100 girls' schools are being closed because of Taliban activity quite recently. But Helmand is absolutely key. Afghanistan accounts for about 90% of all the world's illicit heroin production. 
two-thirds of that comes from Hellmand alone. So basically, rather more than 65% of all the world's illicit heroin comes from this one province, which is why it is so crucially important in terms of trying to prevent that, but also trying to ensure that the Taliban don't make money out of it. We're just seeing the start of the opium poppy harvest. It runs normally from mid-April to round about the end of May. There isn't any kind of really anti-opium poppy operation going on this year. It's too dangerous to do it. So I'm afraid that is an indication mm. of the difficulties that are faced. Of course, we've been talking a lot about, about the Taliban in this respect. But, I mean, a little, a little while ago we were talking about the presence of IS in Afghanistan. What's the state of play there? It's relatively small. I mean, basically people people talking technically you tend to use the term Taliban and other armed opposition groups. That includes ISIS, included some all al-Qaeda elements, and it includes people who are almost at the warlord level. Uh, ISIS is not big, but it is there and it's been trying to make progress. So far that's quite limited. It is very much the Taliban that is leading the way on this. Christopher Lee. Yeah. You have to remember, when, when we talk about Taliban in Afghanistan and ISIS in Afghanistan, it's not as if we were talking about that sort of terrorism group outside of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is almost exclusively sponsored terrorism. And therefore, Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan let's say, uh, Taliban, they have, to, they have to have a sponsor. And you start looking over the border into, in, into, into Pakistan. You look sometimes into the operations which mm. the Pakistani intelligence has got, uh, has been operating. I tell you, go back to this stuff from, from, from Hellman, which is, I think, important, um, Camp Bastion. We've got, he was saying, you know, there are 20,000 uh, people there, 20,000 troops. What 20,000 troops? This is the important thing way to judge what's going on and why they've lost five and a half thousand men you know armored they, they are basically infantry they have a, some very light armor but mm. not very well organized they don't have the uh, ied uh, uh, counter ied operations that you would expect them to have their medical mm. uh, trauma medical is not anywhere near as good and if you look at the stuff that's come up before there's nothing there to suggest it is and then you look at the for example at the, uh, the the heli units there with, with, with uh, and they're empty and there you get immediately the problem with the Afghanistan operation in Helmand, they've got no close air support worth talking mm. about. And that is the key to counter Taliban. Just just briefly going back to something that Christopher said about Paul Rogers, about uh, the, the insurgency in Afghanistan being sponsored by actors outside the country. It does make you think how much you can really achieve by an intervention such as we did in Afghanistan. Well, you look back now, what are we, nearly 15 years on, and everybody thought it would work well within three months the warlords had helped defeat the Taliban Bush gave his famous mission accomplished speech uh, sorry his famous State of the Union address in January the following year and what you had happened was when it appeared to be a success the war was extended to the axis of evil so I think when you put the two together um, there was an assumption that things would go well the key thing is Afghanistan wasn't helped in the early months to make the transition to a more peaceful state we didn't have the 20 or 30,000 peacekeepers that the UN was utterly sort of almost begging Europe to give and I'm paying, we're playing the price for that now nearly 15 years later. Well let's move elsewhere now. There's confusion in Libya after it was reported that one of its governments was stepping aside. On Tuesday the Tripoli government announced that it was making way for the UN-backed unity government but now that appears not to be the case. After the head Khalifa Gwail issued a statement saying they're staying put. Uh, what's going on Paul? Well, it's, it's very odd because, I mean, obviously countries such as 
Britain, uh, Italy, France and the United States wanted some sort of agreement so you had a single government which could be recognised and then they could decide whether they were actually going to put serious air forces into tackling ISIS which has several thousand paramilitaries there and is controlling Surti and some quite large areas. So I think there'll be sort of dismay in the West because there have been determined UN efforts mainly based with a team working out of Malta to try and bring the two groups together. There was an expectation just earlier this week that it was working. Now it doesn't seem to be. So as far as the Western countries are concerned, it is it is almost back to square one, at uh, least for now. And Christopher, this is all without mentioning the other government in Tobruk there. Nobody is actually really governing, are they? If you no, and nor have they done since 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 2011 and the assassination or murder, whatever you like to call it, of, of Gaddafi. Think of Libya at the moment as this. You have effectively two power units described variously as governments by themselves. One in Tobruk, one in Tripoli, the old capital. You have one which is supported by the United Nations but can't get anywhere. You have a government of so-called national uh, accord all waiting to be a power-sharing organisation. But that is so delicately balanced that when uh, when the man that sort of w- was really running it, Faya Saraj, uh, arrived or arrived in Tripoli, he had to go up there by sea to start <laughs> with because uh, he could, couldn't be trusted. You then have the crucial side of it, and that is the various militia. And when you start to cut into uh, democracy and say, look, we'll have a bit of democracy, we'll have government, militia always shudders because there is no reason for mm. militia to exist. And so what you have is, is, is two governments, the possibility of a unity government, but for how long? Looking for blood revenge. And here is the crucial part. If, if the United Kingdom and France intend to carry out their initial offer to go into Libya in order to help them militarily to, to get a security balance. We've reached a point where there has to be a government in power in Libya to invite them in. They're not going to go in un, un, uninvited. And until they get that unity government in, British forces, French forces are not going in other than the in intervention or rather the insertion of specialist forces who will give, give good intelligence of what's going on. Well, uh, British troops have been in Jordan taking part in an exercise, Shamal Storm, it's called. It's a multinational exercise aimed at testing the army's ability to deploy a large armoured force. Simon Newton's been reporting for BFBS from Jordan. He joins us now. Hello, Simon. How big is this exercise and who's taking part? Uh, Well, it's very big. It's 60% bigger than uh, last year. Um, 1,600 British troops, lots of different cat badges uh, including the Duke of Lancaster's regiment, uh, who I was with, as you mentioned, are involved, plus some Jordanian and, uh, and American troops. Um, the UK sent 340 vehicles out from Cyprus and the UK, just to give you some idea of the scale, and many of those have been shipped from Marchwood to the uh, port of Aqaba, right at the bottom of Jordan. And this is really all about the, uh, the Vanguard Enabling Group, which is the name for the Army's deployable forces, and it's really designed to test how effectively the UK could send a large armoured force uh, the figure's been put at around 30,000 troops uh, to a crisis point somewhere in the world. So it's mainly a logistical exercise to see if the UK can mm. essentially mount another Iraq-scale operation anywhere on the globe. Yeah, and a crisis point right next door in Syria. Is this a rehearsal for something? 
Well, of course, Jordan borders not not just Syria but also Iraq. So for the West, it, it's a it's a key ally in the uh, war against Islamic State. Now, if you read some of the reports recently, the military say, in fact, Shamal Storm is is actually more geared to an armoured conflict of the sort uh, NATO might face against uh, Russia than uh, any intervention in the Middle East. Um, but of course. It is a big exercise. There's also this speculation, as you've been discussing, about British troops being asked to go into Libya. So that was the question I really asked uh, the CO of One Lanx, Lieutenant Colonel George Maund. I asked him just that. Should we read anything into it? It's a coincidence for us that we're deploying to Jordan, which, of course, for, for us from our base in Cyprus is only an hour away. Uh, but this is an annual standing exercise programme in this particular country, and we're very grateful to the Jordanians for allowing us to exercise here yet again. Um, but no, you shouldn't read any, anything into it. We are, as an army, we're required to hold forces at readiness, and those forces held at readiness need to be de prepared to deploy to any possible theatre of operations. Uh, and Jordan gives us a useful vehicle in which to train to get us used to the complexities and difficulties to be overcome in deploying to an overseas country, one that we're not... Uh, immediately familiar with and don't have a huge amount of UK national support infrastructure in which uh, to assist us uh, in deploying. So this is simply a generic exercise uh, designed to get us ready for whatever may come our way in terms of an operational tasking. Uh, Simon, tell us a bit more about the exercise itself. Did you speak to any of the soldiers taking part? How, how they found it? Yeah, I, I was in the field with them for about a week or so. There's logisticians, engineers, um, counter IED uh, guys there, as well as one Lanks who are based out here in Cyprus, which is why I was with them. Um, the size of the desert means they can fire everything they have, really. Their mortars, their heavy machine guns. It's a really pretty impressive sight, uh, day and night time uh, exercises. Uh, and there's lots of uh, young soldiers there. This is really the post-Afghanistan generation of recruits, if you like, um, many of them based at the camp where we stayed, which is called Jebel Batra, which is about 1,600 metres above sea level, right in the high desert at the bottom of, uh, of Jordan, uh, near the Israeli border, actually. And the terrain is very difficult. It's, it's not a sandy desert there. It's um, strewn with rocks. So there was a few twisted ankles I saw uh, during my time there. Um, but overall, these, these young soldiers are uh, really getting the chance to use their weapons for real and live firing, of course, what they were stressing to me is very important in terms of the choreography of battle really it's very difficult to replicate live firing with blank rounds and, and the key message really from them to, to me was that for one length this is a very important test because they are about to become the army's regional standby battalion expected to deploy to anywhere within reach of, uh, of Cyprus at a moment's notice so uh, they take on that role next month so potentially uh, they could have to do this for real at some point. Alright, BFBS reporter Simon Newton, thank you and you can see Simon's reports from Exercise Shamal Storm online, just go to forces.tv uh, Christopher, other news around this week Spain and Argentina's foreign ministers have held a joint press conference in Buenos Aires calling on Britain to enter bilateral talks over Gibraltar and and the Falkland Islands not gone down too well, has it? Wind up. That's, that, seriously, <laughs> yes, so that time it's, of it's year not, again. The summer's uh, coming. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's not my sort of... I was going on the desk, the South American desk. I said, what's going on? He said, you ask me that every year. He said, he was really bored. He said, it's a wind up. He <laughs> said, but the point is, it's very simple. Our position is no different both Gibraltar and, and Falklands. Mm. They shall remain as they are until such times as the people of those two places decide 
otherwise and please can we explore. At the moment, no exploration whatsoever. Professor Paul Rogers, I mean, literally a wind-up and just getting on our nerves? I think that, yes. It's interesting that the Falklands and Gibraltar are put together. As, uh, in playing politics, it, it's easy for Britain to respond on Gibraltar because, of course, for Spain has a couple of enclaves in North Africa. Falklands is rather more difficult, but, I mean, the, the Falklands War is so internal to British politics, even if it was, what, 35 years ago, that it's very difficult to see any movement there. The the Falklands Islands have been extremely expensive to keep. I think at the last count it was reckoned that we spent somewhere between one and a half and two million pounds per Falkland Islander since the time of the Falklands War. There's another aspect of this that's coming up in, in September, October. Uh, the Argentinians say that, listen, we are going to take this back to the United Nations Security Council if we can. Mm. And when they do take it back, it'll be under the guise that all countries should have their colonial past levelled out. In other words, Interesting get time for lawyers, isn't it? Exactly. But what's particularly interesting is the Americans will not support the United Kingdom position on this because they will support the organisation of American states on this, especially mm. in election year when there's a big ethnic ethnic minority voting in America. Uh, the former chief of President Putin's security service has been appointed chief of Russia's National Guard. Uh, Christopher, Viktor Zlotov, tell me about him. Viktor Vasilyevich Solotov. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get the pronunciation right or else you'd be in trouble yourself, wouldn't I'd you? i tell you to what. Now, Vic has been around for some time. Uh, he was, he was uh, in, in the business of private looking after people as a private minder. And, he and was, the job he's got he was now, Putin's it, uh, private minder. He's it, going to be the CNC of the National Guard of Russia. And this is uh, partly counter-criminal, but also counter-terrorism. Uh, he has been shifted from where he was uh, before, but he, he's in charge. This man is a tough man. Mm. During a, There was a meeting in, in New York about something, and they were sitting there chatting. The other guy disagreed with him. So he smacked him one between the eyes and laid him this up. This is Victor. Victor. He, Victor. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about this. It's serious stuff. It is. It, really? He laid him out and said, listen, perhaps he'll understand when he wakes up. Mm -hmm. And, and that is the guy that's now running the National Guard. Don't get any ideas. It's like the American National Guard, a mm -hmm. bunch of volunteers. Mm -hmm. These are all pros. Um, Azerbaijan and ethnic Armenian forces have agreed on an intermediate ceasefire after nearly four days of fighting in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. Christopher, first of all, tell people where it is, please. Okay. Um... Most people know that sort of bit that there's the Black Sea and there's the Caspian Sea. Think of a clock. I'm going to try and do this. Think of a clock. Right in the middle of the, is the clock face, Azerbaijan. In uh, Azerbaijan, there is a thing we call, it was a place called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is uh, up in the mountains. Mm. On one side of the Caspian Sea, where the Azerbaijanis get all their oil from, Above that, at 12 o'clock, you've got Russia. At 6 o'clock, you've got uh, so, so, Iran. So, and at 9 o'clock, hang on a minute, <laughs> at 9 o'clock, you've got Armenia. That is, the, that is the problem of it. All those interests at heart. And the people in, 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 in Nagorno-Karabakh are linked to the Armenians, and they want to, they want to secede from the fact that they're in Azerbaijan. So what could, what, what, could, what could this become? Uh, 
uh, it could become what it came before. 9194, 30,000 people were killed in the war between the two. And it's something which goes back to the Christian Armenians versus the Muslim Turks in the 1800s. This is not just a territory thing. It's much more than that. It's the sort of thing you get in mm. this part of the South Caucasus. Uh, Paul, uh, what other forgotten conflict is on the doorstep of this one? Well, on this one, I mean, it, as Chris Fett goes right back, the curious thing about Nagorno-Karabakh is that, in fact, um, Muslim Iran is more supportive of Armenia than it is of Muslim uh, Azerbaijan. That's an extraordinary thing. We actually had a former Iranian um, ambassador to uh, to um, Armenia who has actually did a PhD in our department on this issue. I mm. supervised him. Very interesting. It's a very protracted, very difficult conflict. There was this sign of a ceasefire a couple of days ago, but just looking on what Radio Free Europe is saying a few minutes ago, that has already broken down. So I'm afraid mm. this is ongoing. Um, just before we go this week, the BBC has uncovered a previously unseen video of one of Britain's most infamous spies describing his career as a Soviet agent. The recording shows an ex-MI6 officer, Kim Philby, giving a secret lecture to the Stasi, the East German intelligence service, in 1981. Uh, what does it say, Christopher? Uh, basically, he, he, he was, it was on film, and he's saying to the, uh, the, the Stasi officers in East Germany, he's saying, listen, it was dead easy to nick things from the foreign office. And just say it's not true or whatever when you're in- interrogated. Oh, he said, if you are interrogated, just deny everything and you'll, <laughs> and you'll be OK. Yep. Uh, I tell you what, I had, a, I had a job in Moscow once, and my job every morning at around about 10 o'clock mm. was to go... Was, was to go to a post office box which was clear glass and this was Ken Felby's post office box and to see whether he had cleared his copy of the London Times out of and it. And did he? Therefore, oh, Always? yes, sometimes. Yeah. Do and the crossword, did he? And there, well, I don't know about <laughs> that side of it but your point is you knew that he was around uh, and uh, the the irony of Kim Philby as a spy, everybody knew he was around in MI6 for a long time and did nothing about it, and he caused a lot of deaths. Mm. Well, that is all we have time for today. Uh, thanks to Professor Paul uh, Rogers for joining us today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP as well. We'll be back the same time next week. Thanks for listening. But from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Two teenage girls.